In case you didn't know, it is the 10th of March. And the 10th of March in South Africa is e-commerce day. Or at least it is from now on. Sean Kingston and the team at ecommerce.co.za have put together a really great initiative to promote the rapidly growing online retail shopping and e-commerce space not only is it growing in terms of new businesses that entering the fray but also new users new customers who are changing their behavior i guess in light of what we've you know we've highlighted plenty over the last couple of months this rapidly changing environment that we find ourselves in i wanted to speak to the person that i respect the most in the e-commerce space in south africa and that's ryan bacher ryan bacher is the co-founder and managing director of NetFlorist, netflorist.co.za. Not only is NetFlorist a site that I use a lot, but I think it's been an example to many of us in the industry, both from a online shopping, but also from a uh, just a digital marketing perspective, a real example of excellence, of continued success, of innovation, and of an ability to pivot and adapt like very few organizations I have ever seen before. Ryan is also a very dear friend, and I do need to apologize. I went into recording this episode with a mammoth headache, so if it sounds like I was a little bit out of it, it's because I was a little bit out of it. But the good news is that Ryan was not, so hopefully it will still sound great. You'll still enjoy the conversation, and if you are new to the One Night Man podcast, this is your welcome. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I enjoy being a friend of Ryan's. So Ryan, thanks for joining me today. I know it's a busy, well, I don't know if there's ever not a busy time for you guys, but I, I appreciate you taking some time out of your diary to chat. I'm so happy to be here. It's like a muck. Super, man. So, I mean, apart from the obvious contenders in you know, the travel and tourism industries, which have been, for obvious reasons, decimated by the changes that we've experienced over the last year, it's hard to imagine an industry that's been more deeply affected than than retailers, right? And it seems to me from from the outside from the customer perspective that e-tailers in perspective in particular have either been really really badly affected or have seen a massive upsurge <laughs> in activity uh because of the changing behaviors of consumers under lockdown conditions or you know kind of people starting to feel by virtue of necessity more comfortable with online purchases or whatever it might be I got the sense from chatting to you that it's been a bit of both for NetFlorist. It's been both hugely disruptive, but also you've seen really, really interesting upsides. Can you talk us through some of those experiences over the last year? Yeah, it really has been a roller coaster ride, but I think it's been for everybody. It's not unique to us, yeah. and not unique to any industry. But it kind of started um, like everybody else at the end of March when we realized in April we really couldn't sell almost everything that we normally sold. So it seems so sure. long ago now, but you know, in April, that hard lockdown, almost nothing we sold was a necessity. I remember it so well. It was on the 18th of March. Don't ask me why that date it was, but it was. But I sat with my two partners and we kind of thought, oh God, we're going to have to close the business. Because the interesting thing about COVID was you could see what was going to happen because it was happening overseas just a mm, month or two mm. ahead. So you kind of, you yeah. could hope that it wouldn't happen, but you kind of knew it would, right? So we we knew that everything we sold wouldn't be able to be sold. And our first thought was, well, that's it. We're closing the business. What can we do? And please God, at the end of whenever this ends, there's a business to open again. I mean, we really had those thoughts. Though. They were very real. Hmm. And then when we stopped panicking, which took the better part of that meeting, uh, we thought, well, what do we have that might be relevant for 
a lockdown, whatever lockdown meant. I mean, these words now are so colloquial, but then like a lockdown was a prison. And we had in we had a few years before very fortuitously started investigating fruit and veg as an option in our business. And we didn't go that route for various reasons. We kind of thought mm. people are going to need fruit and veg and groceries. We've got a relationship with a fruit and veg wholesaler. What mm. if we just turned that on? And I now hate this word, but at the time it was the word kind of we used and pivot to that. I don't like the word pivot now for mm. many reasons. But what if we did that? What if we said to our customers, look, mm. can't sell anything else. Could we get approval to do this from government? Because you had to get approval, you had to get a certificate, of and then course, could we do yeah. that? And that is yeah. what we did on the 27th or, or whenever that hard lockdown started. We shifted. We turned on food and veg. We'd already been selling it for a few days. Actually, we got that up pretty quickly, which is remarkable. It's amazing what our team did. In 36 hours, we started selling food and veg. And when hard lockdown came, that level five, we were able to move into that space. It didn't pay the rent. We didn't sell nearly enough fruit and veg as we normally sell flowers and gifts, but it did keep us in in the business game, which was so valuable for us that month, that, that month of April. So the obvious problem of cold chain, which I guess would be the, the biggest obstacle to anybody else who would have looked to solve the same problem at the same time was something that I guess you guys had already solved because if you look at it from a very left field perspective, flowers are fruit and veg, um, yeah. just not particularly edible ones. And so you already had the capacity, I guess, to deliver on that service. You just had to establish or formalize some of the, the relationships that I think you'd been considering for some time and, and put it in motion, right? So how long did it actually take you to make that a reality? So we've known each other for a long time. Hopefully I don't embellish. It went live in 36 hours, which was that's astonishing, crazy. But I think most businesses have had this. It's amazing what happens in times of acute necessity. I mean, it was just, sure. I mean, what could you do? Like if, you know, if our teams came back and said, look, it's a three-month rollout, well, we're dead. Yeah, it's the subtle difference between what can you do versus what do you have to do, right? And and, and how how remarkable it is what you can achieve a, yeah. as a team if you're imposed with, with an urgent deadline, yeah. with, as you said, with, you know, sort of a dramatic obstacle. Yeah, so the relationship was quick. And the reason why the relationship was quick is the, the wholesalers that we used were desperately also facing their own crisis sure. of how they're going to get their stuff to market. And I mean, that's a whole discussion in and of itself, but the farmers in South mm. Africa were just, they were in so much trouble because they've got all this produce and they have to cultivate it, whether they're going to sell their produce mm. or not, mm. Mm. because their fields have to then cyclically get ready Regenerate, for Regenerate, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So, that, so it was just quite, quite stunning. So that was the easy part. Actually, the hardest part was technically because our, our warehouse and our distribution and cold chain, that, that was fine. But our website was not geared to sell fruit and veg because, like, we sell stuff where you put a message on a card. Well, people are now going to buy fruit and veg for themselves. They don't want a message on a card. Just the UX of our site was not catered to fruit and vegetables at all. So that, that, the 36 mm. hours mm. was actually mostly that, interestingly. We went live and we teetered over a few days. And in April, I think it was like 80% of what we sold was fruit and veg. We we were able to sell, like, we sell chocolates and that, but there wasn't a big need for that. People mm. wanted a cool mm. product. So that at least created a sense of a cushion over April and I suppose avoided the need for a dramatic intervention, but it, it certainly wasn't a long-term solution, right? That was kind of the worst-case scenario. Were there any sort of surprising upsides 
as lockdown evolved and as we found ourselves in this perpetual uh, cycle, which I guess is, it almost feels like uh, we're back to where we started a year ago. What were some of the surprising things that happened in the business that were you know, really positive? So early on, so that's, that's really April and then a little bit into May, I think mostly actually it was the culture and the team because what was happening in April was we were all working super hard. I mean, it turns yeah. out, it's, it's funny, I, I said this to somebody and I thought, hey, I could have just coined a phrase. It can't sound quite good, but it, it turns out that it's much harder work to save a business than to run a business. It's like much more work. Hmm. And that's how what we felt we were doing in April. We were trying to save a business. And running a business is just hmm. kind of day to day and you get up at a normal time and you go to bed at a normal time. But when you're trying to save a business, everything goes upside down and you wake up much earlier and you go to bed much later and you work on weekends, et cetera, et cetera. So we were facing that in April because we were selling fruit and veg, but we were selling much less in revenues and we've got a business yeah. to support and we weren't going to be able to support it sufficiently. Yeah. So the team came together and actually we, we still feel like we were experiencing the benefits of that. Like, like we just became completely flat. I mean, I've got two partners and a management team and there was, there was just no hierarchy. Everything went out the window. It was just a case of, how are we going to do this? Who's going to do what, et cetera. And there was such appreciation from all of us because so many of the people we knew who were in other businesses or running other businesses just closed mm. the door and went home and were like just faced with their own existential terrible realities and fear and anxiety and having nothing to do. And our team were busy as all hell. And although that business mm. wasn't resulting in shooting the lights out from a revenue point of view, it really kept us a cohesive group and an engaged group. And we were so appreciative. Like I was, I had what to do in April and I had friends who had nothing hmm. to do, but panic. And there was no time to panic. We couldn't panic. We had to save yeah. business. So there was a huge benefit, especially transitioning into May because in May, um, to the whole another story, but eventually flowers were able to be sold. I mean, I landed up in prison, bailing some employees out. It was, it was quite a hectic month, but eventually we were able to sell flowers in May and actually to transition into that was quite easy for us to go back to some kind of business because we had been in the business for a month versus other people who didn't know whether to start, stop, how, because they closed their doors for a month. So we had mm, continuity, mm. which was super powerful. There's that adage that there's nothing that bonds people like a shared trauma <laughs> in a way yeah. that's what you're describing, right? If you go through that shared because I guess everybody in the business, regardless of how much skin they have in the game, is worried about not not just their jobs and their livelihood, but their families and their well-being and the communities yeah. that they're in. So there's these layers of anxiety and trauma that everybody's going through together. And I can only imagine that that's going to stand you in good – you've built a foundation, I guess, around – collaboration and trust and codependency in a positive way that I'm sure will be a big part of, of what will make you successful in the future. Are, are you thinking about the business any differently, knowing that hopefully with vaccines rolling out slower than I guess we'd all like, but are mm -hmm. you thinking any differently about how NetFlorist will do the work that it does into the, the immediate future coming out of COVID? Um, we think about it a lot. We, we feel like we're kind of bumbling idiots from a strategic point of view because it is just so hard to know what our business is going to look like through this hopefully slowing down of the pandemic and hopefully that just continues and there's no third wave, maybe there will be. You know, the first thing you've got to try and think about is, well, if there's a third wave, what does that mean? Because everybody's talking about it. And then 
if there isn't a third wave, what does that mean? And then if, you know, in August we're on the other side of COVID, what does that mean? Normally, strategically, I mean, you've run businesses before, you don't generally have to factor in such crazy external realities into your little nucleus of a business. You have you have variability, but not like that. So we strategically mm-hmm. planning for a, you know, for e-commerce to become a more significant reality for most South Africans because they've been using yeah. it more than they had. And I, I, yeah. you know, when COVID is done, hopefully they're more used to that. And But we don't know. You know, there some people I speak to go, no, I use e-commerce all the time. And, you know, that's now become my reality. And other people I've spoken to said, you know, I used it a lot in lockdown, but I, I, I like going to the shops. So, you know, I bought, you know, I bought tracksuit pants during lockdown because I didn't have a choice. But actually, I quite like going and having a look. So we mm. don't know. And it, it's actually, it's, it's very complicated for most retailers because you don't know what to buy for it. We, we buy yes, stuff yes. Uh, we bring in from all over the world. We buy stuff and we place mm. six months in advance. And it's very hard to forecast what stock we're going to need. We could get it horribly wrong. I mean, I, I spoke to so many people like in December who went to a shop and then, you know, said, oh, you know, they sold out of this and this and this and this. So pe- people are quite binary when they think about it. But those shops had to make a call in July. How much stock to buy for December? Can you imagine how hard that decision was? You just don't know. No, 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 like, like it's an impossible decision. So, of course, they were sold out in some stuff. They had to decide in July when the world was imploding because they placed yeah, six yeah. months in advance. What to invest. Wow, how, well, how much stock to have in December, not knowing whether December would be a huge surge in retail for some retailers it was, or dead, or lockdown five, or lockdown three. Like, it's a real complexities in business that I don't think anybody's faced in our lifetime before. Great podcasts don't happen without great guests, and great guests don't happen without great partners. This show wouldn't be possible without the help of Forward Zone. Find them at forwardzone.com. They're a global sports management specialist with a core focus on strategic consulting, experiential activations, and of course, talent management. And then Platform 45, who's come on board to sponsor a couple of episodes now. They're a software company. They're data-driven, design-thinking problem solvers, just like my guests. And they've done work for fintech startups, mining giants, pioneering entrepreneurs, and telecoms, amongst others. We thank them so much for their support. Please go check out their websites at forwardzone.com and platform45.com and enjoy the rest of the show. So many people obviously know you for gifting, but there's there's extra dimensions that you've added to the NetFlorist ecosystem over the last couple of years that I guess a lot of customers are still discovering and learning about. Um, mm-hmm. When you think about the future of the business, do you think about diversifying further or do you think about doubling down on the things that you're good at? How do you balance the sort of tension between those two things from a strategy and innovation perspective? Right. So... We think about it like this in our business and we get it right and wrong like everybody, but we look at our core and we just work out how to get better and better at our core. There's not much strategy in that. That's more, we do something, how do we do it better for the customer? How do we do it more cost effectively? Whatever the nuances are around that thing, we, we, we sweat that. And I think that's how all businesses are. And we think of that as horizon one stuff. And sorry, just to clarify, do you think of core as gifting or do you think of core as flowers? 
gifting. Okay. And specifically yeah. the gifting that we're currently in. So we, we sell flowers, we sell hampers, we've got this personalized mm. range, and that's you know, bakery and, and that stuff. And what we've got to do all the time is be better and better at doing that thing for all sorts of reasons. Number one, our mm. customers mm. deserve a better and better and better service product like any business. Number two, it prevents people from competing with us, hopefully by getting better and better and better and those kind of things. But then we also speak a lot about this idea of this future back strategy, which I quite like, which is try and look in the future and then think how things are going to be and work back from there. So there's an interesting mm-hmm. idea that if you look from the core out, it's present future thinking. So you, you know what you are and now just get better and better at it. And then strategically, which we call Horizon 3 in our business, why we call it that, I have no idea, which is the stuff that we don't do now, but that looking at the assets that we have in our business, we could potentially do. And then we mm, start to mm. discuss what should we do? Because just because you can do something doesn't mean you'll get it right and doesn't mean you should do it. So, you know, we could deliver PPE equipment. We could. We've got the, we've got the infrastructure. We've got a warehouse. We've got, but, but we'd suck at it. We've got no, mm, yeah. it's, it's not our thing. Yeah. We could do it, but that doesn't mean we should and we'd be lousy at it and we'd fail at it. So we do try and think outside of our core gifting. Um, for example, in about two months' time, we're going to be launching, hopefully if we launch on time, a range of photo books. You'll be able to upload uh, photos into our environment and we'll deliver you a ready-made photo book of your wedding or your anniversary or your holiday or whatever it is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 100%. Now, right. Now, that that's not really gifting. Most people buy that for themselves. Some people may gift that, but it takes what we have. We've got this personalization environment, we've got the ability to make it up, deliver it. We've got the machines already. So that, that's an idea of saying, what do we have and where can we go that is new to us but can add on to the whole value proposition of the business? So that would be an H3 thing for us versus getting our current personalization to just be better. You know, the mugs and the chopping boards and what we do, just do it better, better products for the customer, et cetera. That would be cool. That would be an example of mm. both, I guess. You know, this is an e-commerce driven conversation or topic uh, oriented conversation and and obviously like most things in the digital sphere e-commerce can mean different things to different people but one of the one of the pieces of work that you've been doing over the last while I've always been a huge advocate of you know you learn the most when you teach but mm. you've been doing quite a lot of work with Gibbs and other partners developing e-commerce programs and e-commerce courses to I guess share some of the knowledge and experience that you've gained over the last while and I identify a lot with you in the sense that neither you or I are technologists by nature. We we didn't grow up coding or building computers like like a lot of our very technologically gifted friends did. So we've sort of had to wade our way through <laughs> through digital yeah. uh, kind of slowly, but in a way that's a that's been a strength because it forces us to understand uh, these concepts from a different perspective. Talk to me a little bit about your passion for teaching and how that might have changed the way you see the business and, and what you've kind of learned through the process of, I guess, helping others learn. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that started when I was quite young because when I was at um, uh, Vitz Law School and I needed to earn some money and I yeah. was a tennis player when I was younger, so I started coaching tennis. And I actually did that for a long time. Oh, yeah? did it overseas, locally and overseas, and I loved it. I like teaching. I don't know why I like teaching. I, I taught friends to play the drums for, for extra money, but the difference is that you could actually play tennis. Um, 
And uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the best, but I was one of the best in my street. So. <laughs> that probably was good enough. Proximity is very important. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I kind of worked out early on that I like teaching. And as I said, I don't know why. There is a, there's an ego component to teaching. No question. I think, I'm, uh, I think I've got a propensity for it. And that's carried through, actually. I've often spoken at conferences over the years, e-commerce conferences, those kinds of things, and other conferences. And I started engaging quite a bit with Gibbs. I just love their camp campus. I love their ethos about learning. And we started putting together these e-commerce courses that the, the main reason for it is exactly what you say, is most of my peers don't understand technology, and I don't either. I'm not a technologist. But it's, it's flipping terrifying because there's jargon all over the place. It's like you, you don't want to be the guy in the room who puts up their hand and says, sorry, please tell me what SEO is. No, because everybody of just course. talks about yeah. it now. Like, oh, we've got an SEO strategy. And you don't want to be the idiot in the boardroom going, look, I don't know what the hell it is. So actually, I don't think enough questions are asked. So yeah, we mm. started putting together courses that would just dumb things down and make it okay not to know about the stuff. And I'm a good mm. guy to teach that because I'm exactly that guy. I'm the guy mm. who doesn't mm. really understand the intricacies of SEO, but I understand enough so that I can manage it in our business. So Yeah, and, and, and to contextualize it from a business strategy perspective rather than right. a means or, or it's a means to an end rather than the end. That's right. So I, yeah. I couldn't help any company with their specific SEO strategy. But what I could do mm. if I was a consultant, which I'm not, is I could come into their business and say, this is how SEO fits in, this is how AdWords fits in, this is how Facebook marketing fits in, if we talk about digital marketing, mm. this is how and you know, mm. this is your ecosystem that you're going to work with, and and I'll dumb down some of the terminology, and then you know, and then you're going to need an expert to help you, or you're going to need a deep dive. So that's what the course really yeah. is. It's about taking lots of parts of e-commerce, web design, um, UX, analytics, payment delivery, whatever. And just dumbing it down in a way that I understand it because I've needed to dumb down with all of it. You know, we talk a lot about barriers to entry in, in the digital space, Ryan, because obviously, you, you know, you alluded to this earlier on when you were talking about just being better at your core offering to, to ensure that you maintain that competitive advantage. Uh, and, and it's fair to say that when people think about a side hustle or they think about creating value in new spaces or they, you know, potentially have have lost their jobs or or found themselves unemployed for whatever reason. This often becomes something that they consider as a way to to make money. Uh, E-commerce seems to be a, a sort of a default uh, opportunity for a lot of people. Do you consider that a threat, or do you see that as as a really great way of you know sort of a rising tide lifts all ships kind of thinking in that the more people that are trading in e-commerce or creating e-commerce spaces or building an e-commerce mindset, you know, in customers, the better it is for you and net florist. What, you know, how do you think about it as a, I'm trying to think of the right terminology here, but um, a very popular <laughs> new um, yeah. um, opportunity for so many entrepreneurs. Yeah, we definitely think it's a good thing. Um, in other words, we have to stay good at what we're doing. Stay good, be good, get better, whatever it is. I don't know where we are at the moment. Yeah. We have to continually improve and iterate and just do what we do better and better and better. Hmm. And if we do that and many other new entrances come into the market and lift that tide, that's going to be good for us. If we rest on hmm. our morals, we'll get, we'll get slaughtered. 
but that's the sure. challenge to us. Averse, everybody just keep away from the internet. Let's just keep this thing quiet and we'll we'll continue our little niche. That's we we don't yeah. we don't want that. We we want many more South Africans on the internet, many more South Africans selling stuff on the internet, and us doing the very best we can in what we do to keep our competitive edge. That's the best case scenario for us. To get a little bit more technical, I mean, one of the byproducts of the rising tide of e-commerce, both from a customer perspective and also from new entrants into the market, is that the technology is getting a lot better. And you look at the the dominance of players like Shopify and how they've solved sort of the end-to-end complexity, mm-hmm. you know, all of the elements that you were talking about earlier on, you know, building a store, solving for SEO, doing your marketing pieces, managing the funnel, all of these pieces that... I guess for any new entrant previously would have seemed like putting together a very complicated jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces were like white. <laughs> and now all of a sudden these players solve the, you know, when you think about the, the technological uh, framework behind your business and you, and you sort of project five years ahead, how does that impact the way you think about the sort of skeleton behind your business? Do you imagine in time that you will eventually partner with a provider like that or do you are you going to keep owning your own infrastructure i think more than likely we'll keep owning but it's a big debate i think it's a big debate in most e-commerce companies i experienced mm. up until now and it could shift is that when you're starting out there's absolutely no reason to build your own anything in fact you've been yeah. in the head to do so especially today yeah especially today when we started there was no choice there were no shoppers off the shelf. We had to build it ourselves. Yeah, but yeah. when your business gets a bit more complex in terms of your offering and the size of your business, it's not always that easy to work with mm. a generic off-the-shelf package, as good as they yeah. are. So you'll find that most of the bigger e-commerce companies locally build and own their own technology. Not mm. many of them use a Magenta or a Shopify or those kind of platforms or WordPress or whatever it is. So I think we'll continue down the same road unless things change. The other thing with that, which is unique, which is important for anybody listening to this, is we're quite a unique business, not in a good or a bad way, just very niche. Being in the gifting space is quite unique. Very few businesses yeah. focus only on gifting. The downside yeah. of that uniqueness is none of these platforms cater much for gifting businesses. It's just not what's mm. needed. They cater for, mm. you know, the what take a lot and those kind of guys sell, you know. Sure, general retailing. Yeah. FMC, general retailing, right. And when you're, when you're a gifting company, you've got all sorts of nuances that these big platforms just don't build for. So mm. for mm. now, we, we have no choice in going forward. I don't think that's going to change much, actually. You know, it's, I mean, it's something we haven't spoken about yet, but despite the fact that there's a low barrier to entry and despite the fact that there is kind of this rising tide, I'm going to keep referring to that analogy, there are very few major e-commerce players that have enjoyed extended periods of profitability and success and often are funded by a combination of private equity or big, you know, kind of corporate support behind the scenes or they are the e-commerce arm of some other uh, large traditional player and, and so more necessity than than necessarily a, a viable entity in their own rights. But you guys have consistently enjoyed and have had to maintained a, a, a site that is is sustainable in its own right and, and a profitable business. What do you think is different about the business you've created and the other major e-commerce players that allows you to maintain that position and, and, you know, kind of how, how should other, maybe people that are listening to this that are building 
uh, uh, platforms think about that uh, as they invest in, you know, in their new entrance? Sure, that's a tough question. Look, one of the things is necessity is the mother of all invention. The, the reason why I say that is because we haven't had, you know, a big daddy behind us. We've yeah. we've had to make this viable, and um, and one of the things we haven't done is over invest in marketing. We have invested in marketing, but most of the online guys who struggled along the way have just chronically over invested in in acquiring a customer on the mm. hope that mm. later on they'll monetize that guy, but they'll lose money the first few orders and then make money eventually. We've just never had that luxury. We just haven't. Mm. So mm. now the downside of that, by the way, is growth rates. Although our growth rates are, are, we're quite happy with them, another owner of this business could well have had a different strategy, could well have had a strategy. So I don't care about the viability of the business in the short term. Just grow the hell out of this thing and we'll work it out later. And, and, hmm, and that sure. works for lots of businesses. I mean, we all know Amazon, right? You know, people who read them, read about them, think that the whole Amazon thing is working, but their retail business isn't. But he's happy with mm. that business. I mean, AWS pays yes, for it. Sure. So he's Pilot very strategy, happy. Yeah. Right. He's happy with that. So it's not a right or wrong. It fits who we are. I've got two partners, the three of us as owners. It fits our personality. I think we're more conservative than most. And we've just gone along the way making sure that we can pay our bills at the end of the month instead of saying, well, we'll just go for another round of funding and we'll just go for another round of funding. And But both can work, by the way. And both have worked. Yeah. Yeah. Look, this is a topic that has come up on the podcast before. You know, this this idea of exponential growth, the kind of Silicon Valley mindset, you know, yeah. bigger is better, critical mass at all costs versus the types of business models that we are forced to create, as you said, by, by virtue of necessity, when you're building in a market like ours, you don't, A, you don't necessarily have the capacity to grow into but B, you have to build a different kind of resilience into the organization, a different kind of – it's linear growth and sustainability rather than exponential growth and you're kind of – I don't know what because there are other fallouts. <laughs> uh, there yeah, are other sure. uh, costs, if you like. And certainly with exponential growth comes exponential problems. So it's worth acknowledging that there – you know, it's not without its 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 quandaries. And I guess when you're building a business with the ideology that you are, um, you're able to navigate those in a, in a, I guess, in a more manageable way. Also, I think you care more about people than a lot of exponential uh, businesses at least pretend to. Um, <laughs> and in a place like South Africa, I think you have to, even if you do, <laughs> by nature aren't the kind of person that really cares about people. I think you have to in a context like ours even if only to build a better business, even if your motivation is only profitability, I don't think you can do so without being deeply considerate of people's well-being. Look, hopefully we are. Hopefully we are. But I think you also have to be have to try and be honest to who you are. So if you don't have the appetite for just huge risk, then you shouldn't go after that. And then we've never had that. We, we, you know, we haven't faced a reality in our business where, you know, this thing could kill us or mm. it could make us heroes. That that's mm. just hasn't mm. been our approach. But as I said, there are people whose natures are like that and that works for some of them very well. And for others, they blow out and hopefully they start something else. And it's just, it's, it's not our natures. It's not, it, it, it doesn't feel like our natures in the walls. I mean, I'm sitting in my 
in uh, our office park and I look around, we don't, we don't operate like that here. Mm. But again, somebody else could have and could have built a much bigger business and it could have worked, mm. but it, would, it wasn't going to be us. So Ryan, this is, a, um, as I mentioned before, uh, part of a, an initiative by Sean Kingston and the ecommerce.co.za team to, to drive more awareness around the growth of the e-commerce industry and to, I guess, drive excellence as well, to ensure that this is not something that we're doing because we feel like we have to, but it's something that we're doing because we feel that consumers deserve a better experience and South Africa will grow economically and socially on the back of job creation and on the back of us building better businesses. And I think you guys are a quintessential example of that kind of business and the value it creates. I am not afraid to admit that it's a company that I wish <laughs> I wish I'd thought of or wish I could work for. And you're, <laughs> you're one of the organizations that I, I, I dearly love and admire. And it's always a pleasure learning from you and, and the work that you've done. But for the benefit of people that, that are, are listening to the show and, and you know, don't have the privilege of being able to take random walks with you through Waterfall Estate from time to time, what, what <laughs> pieces of advice would you give to people that are, are, are both in established e-commerce businesses but also people that are sort of starting out on that journey that will hopefully stand them in, in good stead? Hmm. So firstly, thanks for all the nice stuff you said, Mike. It's very appreciated. It doesn't fall on deaf ears. Thank sure. you. I'm so bad at advice. <laughs> God, we've made so many mistakes. Oh, my God. In our 20-year history, we've just done some things that we shouldn't have done and then hopefully done some other things that we should have done and the one trumps the other. I would, I would think if, you, if you're going to start an e-commerce business, I would think quite hard about digital marketing. Mm. A lot of the pieces of e-commerce have been solved quite well, actually, which is really lacquer compared to the early days. Mm. Things like last mile delivery. People talk about it. Ah. Oh, you know, how do you get something delivered in South Africa? It's actually quite easy. When, mm. you, when, you, when you get into it, you'll work out that's been sold. And the technology piece has been sold. You can pay Shopify $9 a month or whatever it is, and you'll build your site. Mm. So, yeah, it won't be exactly as you want, but it'll be good enough. And the product, uh, you know, if you're going to sell widgets, you'll, you'll work it out. Mm. The hardest thing, and the thing that I get called the most by people who've gone into the industry and want some advice, and uh, as I say, I'm not good at advice, is I've built this whole thing. It's set up, I've got it done, but nobody's buying. Mm. Or not as many people as I thought would buy. And the complexity of e-commerce, I really think, is around digital marketing. That, that, that's where the battle is. It's a long battle. And it's a Mine complex lost. battle and it changes. Yeah. You think you, yeah, and you think you've got SEO sorted out and the next day Google changes an algorithm and you get everything changes mm. and you think your email marketing is done mm. and then you get, you get into everybody's spam filters. These things are complex, mm. but it's where a lot of the thought, much more thought needs to go into that, mm. frankly, mm. than how you're going to get the thing delivered and what payment gateway are you going to use. That mm. stuff, that's really easy to do. Uh, so that's my advice. Frankly, even with existing e-commerce businesses is, yeah, 70% of your day is going to have to be around how do you acquire a customer in a profitable way so your business doesn't go belly up. Versus a retail environment, which everybody knows how that thing works, is you pay somebody rent and you hope to God that they have enough foot traffic sure. in their malls, strip mall, where the, the marketing, I mean, you can do some flyers, but it's really about proximity. Yeah, yeah. On the internet, proximity just goes out the window. It's, it's, that whole thing about if you build it, they will come is not true mm, mm. on the internet. So that's. My advice is you're going to have to double down on your thinking around digital marketing. And register for your course. 
that you can do with pleasure. <laughs> um, speaking of pleasure, it is always a pleasure and a privilege to speak to you and to learn from you. And thank you for the example that you set, not only to me, but to other entrepreneurs and South Africans who are looking to do well in business and not just do well in business, but to create value at the same time. I think you are a, a shining example of that. So thanks for taking the time to to chat on the show. And uh, yeah, my friend, looking forward to catching up soon and uh, wishing you guys the best of luck for the next couple of months as we hopefully emerge from this very strange period. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Well, you're always, always very kind. Thank you. Chat to you soon. Ciao. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.